Hey everybody, Chuck Marone. Real quick before we get started, the Locomotive Tour is about to depart the station. You don't want to miss it. We have 10 great courses uh, for people who are interested in this, the 2021 year of action, putting Strongtown's ideas to work in your community. Go to strongtowns.org forward slash locomotive. That's L-O-C-A-L, local motive, M-O-T-I-V-E. Go to locomotive and get signed up today. If you are someone who is interested in how Strong Towns ideas can be put to work in your community, whether you are an elected, appointed public official, whether you're a professional working in the field, or whether you are just someone who cares deeply about your community, we have priced this and set this up to work for you. So go to strongtowns.org forward slash local motive and get signed up today. Don't miss the train. It is leaving the station very soon in a couple of weeks. You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hello, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. Glad you're here joining us in the new year. Transit is one of these issues that we talk about here frequently, but it's one of those issues that I am a passive observer of. I have watched our our transit systems this year go through extreme convulsion in 2020, a period where, you know, responding to the pandemic, we saw existing models that were fragile to begin with turned upside down. Gabrielle Gurley is a deputy editor of the American Prospect. She has written a great article called Public Transportation in Crisis. It's quite long and it's quite thorough and it's quite good. And we invited her to come on the podcast to chat about it. Gabriella, welcome to the Strong Downs podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Charles. Glad to be here. It's really wonderful to chat with you. And Chuck is just fine. I tell my friends they can call me Chuck, so feel free. Um, Where are you at today? Are you in Washington, D.C.? I am actually in uh, Washington, D.C. I am working from home. I'm in the northwest corner of the city near the Maryland border. I feel like Washington, D.C. has the nation's best transit. Is that a is that a fair statement, you think? I would say of the transit systems that I have been fortunate enough to ride uh, in the U.S., I would say that is correct. It's a beautiful system. It's relatively new. It opened in 1976 compared to someplace like New York, which opened at the beginning of the 20th century or, or, or Boston. It's pretty extensive. It's, it's kind of a, a subway plus commuter rail. Some, some cities have, have them split off that you have a, a subway system and another uh, heavier train for a commuter rail. The DC Metro Rail functions as, as both. It goes way out into the suburbs which is great. So it works very well for for tourists, of course. It works great for the working uh, population. Obviously, there's a very extensive bus network, too. Transit in Washington these days, is it's rather sad for someone like me who, who grew up riding urban transportation. I, I'm originally from Philadelphia, so I grew up riding the subway. The rail system, is is practically at least the, the line that I ride frequently is is deserted. There is literally no one riding. I was on it on Sunday, Sunday morning. I was the only person on the rail car that I was on. Same thing going back. I take it to a different section of the city to ride my bike. 
down on the National Mall and the museums, and there's some great riding areas. There's nobody on it. On the times when I have taken it at rush hour between five and seven, same difference, very, very light. It's down very heavily on the rail system. The bus system really depends on where you are going and coming uh, from. Essential workers still need to get around and some of the bus lines are very busy depending on, on what parts of the city you are traveling from and, and going to. I can tell you downtown Washington is practically deserted, however. Um, a lot of the white collar workers are, it's a government town, government is downtown, and those folks are working from home for the most part. Yeah. Can we go back to pre-pandemic, at least pre-US pandemic? Because it seems like transit systems were in a state of if not crisis, at least tension back then. And I think maybe we called it crisis back then, but it was not where we're at today. Can you take us back to that period of time and just talk about what the nation's transit was like pre-pandemic and, and where maybe the biggest points of tension or frustration were? Well, I think if you, even if you are, if you're an urban system like Washington DC or New York City, or even if you're a, a tiny rural system, I talked to Spearfish, South Dakota, revenue is always a problem. It's an ongoing concern. The bigger systems are, are heavily dependent on federal dollars. Many of them do not get any, any state money the amount of revenue they can get from fares varies all over the place. A place like New York gets almost half of its revenue from, from just fare collection. A tiny place like Spearfish, South Dakota, which is near uh, Rapid City, not only gets its, its, its revenue from fares, but they rely on, on donations from, from local businesses. So it's always a scramble to get the money to keep the system going. Uh, some communities, some mid-sized communities rely on sales tax dollars and can bump those up, but we can, we're talking pennies on a dollar. It's always a, a quest to meet the demand and in, in urban areas and in, in rural areas, there's a, there's a heavy demand for transit, but to the degree that these communities can provide transit, it's it's all over the board as to what they can provide on what dollars. We do not fund our systems to the degree that other countries do. I always hesitate to, to mention Western Europe, because if, if you've traveled in Western Europe, you, you know that they have beautiful transit systems that run fairly frequently but there's a different value. Your Western Europeans are heavily taxed and a lot of that money goes into transit and our system is just not set up that way. It seems like our system is set up to be, in a sense, an appendage or an afterthought to the highway system. Sure. Mm -hmm. Why is that? How, how did that happen? Are we in agreement on that? Do I have that correct? Yes, we're a car-centric culture. Right. We're a huge country. We're a huge country. I know we, we, we talk about, you know, different sections of the country, but it's 3,000 miles from one end to the other, from east to west. 
not all those areas are, are covered by transit. One reason that we are, are so car-centric is because President Dwight Eisenhower, in his infinite wisdom, he, as a young soldier, had to slog across many states in World War I, trying to get things, uh, move men and material from, from different sections of the country. And it was his brainchild after that experience to create the, the interstate highway system, which was a boon, particularly to the middle of the country, to have this network where you could move goods and services and, and people. It is perfectly reasonable to, to see why we're a car culture. However, in the larger cities, particularly on the East Coast, where you have lots of people crammed together, you can't have, you know, cars max out at a certain point. And anyone who's spent any time in, this, in a large city knows that at certain hours of the day, it's gridlock. You can't move around. So these alternatives to, to car traffic developed in a in a way a fast way to move lots of people. So it's perfectly understandable that in rural areas, public transportation is a lesser way to get around and that the people who take it are more dependent. These are people who don't have cars. Imagine living in a rural area without a car and having to rely on public transportation. In cities where people are closer together, distances are, are thought of in different ways. There are, there are alternatives. You can walk, you can bike. But when you get into the vast reaches of, of the United States, you can't, you can't do that. So it's perfectly understandable why cars have the centrality that they do in, in certain areas of the country. And, and maybe in other areas of the country, they've been re rejected because you can't really get anywhere quickly if you drive a car because everybody else has a car. As we got into March of 2020, I know things started to change and they started to change dramatically. I, I've, I've been to Washington, D.C. many times and I've never been on an empty car. Even in the middle of the night, I've never been on an empty vehicle. You talked a little bit about already about how ridership declined. What does this look like? And I think particularly, what effect has this had on the way we deliver, fund, and pay for our transit systems? Well, I think at the beginning of, of the pandemic, people were fearful. They did not want to have anything to do with being on a car, a rail car, or a bus with lots of other people. Once we went into lockdown in, in mid-March, I was not going to go anywhere near uh, the subway or, or a bus. That was, the, that was the situation everywhere in the country. I kind of feel too that there was a certain like reasonableness in that because of how much unknown there was, right? Exactly. We didn't know at that time what the real risk was. We knew it was obviously airborne. The disinfecting protocols were not in place. People were going on, on subways, you know, right before we went into lockdown, you know, people were wearing gloves, people starting to wear masks. It was very much a situation where no one knew what was going on. As we started getting into the, the summer months, we knew more and transit systems, big and small, had mastered their disinfecting regimes. They had uh, sealed off their drivers. If you're driving a bus, 
with plexiglass. At the beginning, they were kind of improvising, but finally arrived at plexiglass, arrived at ways to ventilate buses. On subways, obviously, you have a different a different system. So buses became very quickly the preferred means of transportation, particularly where there was still some 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 ridership. It was seen as safer. It was easier to get off if you were feeling uncomfortable. Similarly, in rural areas and in, in the Prairie Hills Transit and in Spearfish, South Dakota, the head of the system there actually had two doctors and two nurses come in and, and to evaluate their their protocols. So as people became more more comfortable, as we started getting into the midpoint of the of the pandemic, you know, based on on where we are now, people slowly and lockdowns eased, particularly in in the big cities. People started gingerly coming back to transit, particularly essential workers. Essential workers never really dropped off. Transit was still offered to varying degrees, depending on, on, on where you live. The hours may have been cut back, but there was always, there was always been a certain number of people who, who had to ride transit. They could not work from home. They were grocery store clerks or postal employees, and they were on. In, in D.C., as I said earlier, the traffic downtown, as far as people traffic, has not really recovered that, that I can see. So you don't have anybody on the trains. You really don't have any anyone on the buses that going into the central core. And if you look at a city like Philadelphia, and I'm originally from Philadelphia, it's a different situation. I took the had to go back and forth for family reasons to Philadelphia. And the bus going from my neighborhood to downtown Philadelphia had plenty of people on it to the point where I was really uncomfortable being on the bus. Similarly, the subway, um, the elevated subway from my neighborhood downtown, I thought, okay, I'm not too happy about this bus. Let me, let me take the subway. At least it's a quick ride. Well, that was just as bad as not worse because you were spending, um, it may be a quick ride, but you have people who were not observing the mass protocols and it was a little bit crowded. And as I describe in my article, like on buses, people are jockeying for positions so that they're not on top of each other. And of course, no one wants to get into a conversation with, with someone who's not wearing a mask. So now I think those who are riding transit have kind of gotten it down to, to science as to, you know, as if you have a flexible schedule, you can ride transit at certain times of day and not run in the, into people, too many people. But for the most part in D.C., the ridership has not come back on, on subways. In Philadelphia, it's pretty healthy. If, if you're coming from a residential neighborhood downtown, there are plenty of people and there are actually plenty of people in the streets. It, it's not a government center. Coming from D.C. to Philadelphia is almost like going back to a real city. There were plenty of people out and about. So it really depends on the unique geographies of the places of the cities or medium-sized cities and even in rural areas. You're still going to have that dependent population that has to take transit. They have to get to their jobs or they don't have the option of someone driving them if you're an elderly homebound senior and you're and you have to rely on somebody to either bring you groceries or if you are a senior who can still get out and about, you've got to get on the bus to go get your your 
meals. And I saw plenty of seniors who I would not have thought would be going out even here in the district with their shopping carts taking transit. This is going to sound like a bit of a diversion, but but stick with me because I, I do think it's insightful. I found myself in November of last year at Disney World. I was working on a project and I actually spent five days there. And it was fascinating because in the middle of the pandemic, people were you know, there in masks. They had all the protocols in place. They had the dividers, the plexiglass, everybody spaced out. The interesting thing that I noticed, particularly about not just their transit system, which is 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 very high quality from a tourist standpoint, but also th- just the rides and stuff. They had, in a sense, had a fourth the number of people there, but they had not decreased at all the, in a sense, the the interval of the rides, the interval of the buses, the interval of anything. And so they were able to keep a very high level of service by keeping a high level of frequency in a sense. They didn't change the experience. They actually made the experience, I think, a little bit better for people by compensating by adding frequency. You would get on a ride and it would be, you know, one out of four seats would be filled. So you had plenty of spacing. Normally, if the park was that slow, they would just cut back on the number of rides they did. They would have fewer people working and and fewer rides going. That's not what they did. I have read and I have talked to talked to people in New York and in other major cities, San Francisco, who have discussed the cutbacks and basically the idea that we would take and not add more frequency so people can get more spaced and have more room, but but actually for budget reasons, go in the other direction and say we're going to have fewer lines and they're going to run less often and we're going to have to have, in a sense, more people crammed into them. Is this what you're experiencing and how is this you know, going to work or not going to work as a response to the financial crisis that transit now finds itself in? It's really on a a city by city or a community by community basis. I find myself wondering in in Washington, D.C., why Metro Rail is still running eight-car trains. We have six and eight-car trains here. Six-car trains usually run uh, on the weekends, depending on your line. I suspect some of that is is to keep the workers working. There's a bus that runs on a main street in my neighborhood. It's eh, maybe a half a dozen people on it at any given time of the day. That is, that's the only reason that I can see that some of these things are still running. But the cutbacks, yeah, I mean, you know, down as I said, downtown Washington, the entertainment districts are empty. So you do need to cut back at night to save money. Because first of all, there's virtually no one in New York City. They have uh, cut back on overnight travel because there's there's no one on it. So you do have to take that into consideration. I probably keep your, you know, your daytime service as robust as you can. But if the revenue is not coming in, what are you going to do? You're kicking the problem out perhaps, but you have to cut somewhere. So you start with the, for example, the overnight. So the revenue is not coming in. You got to provide some service, but the cuts are coming. I mean, a place like New York, New York is in serious trouble. They rely on about 50% of their revenue from fares and tolls. People aren't driving that much, and they're certainly not taking transit as to the degree 
that they're used to. Same thing in San Francisco. They rely on fair revenue and parking fees and charges and fines, ironically. You got to cut somewhere and you have to start now. The big question is what's going to happen in the fiscal year. Some systems are talking about really, really deep cuts in the next fiscal year, which for some systems begins in July of 2021. Washington, D.C. is talking about cutting weekend service. Cutting weekend service at a time in July of 2021 where the vaccination levels may have gone up and people may start coming back to transit. Systems are kind of at their wits end and they are waiting to see what, again, what Washington, federal Washington does to provide them with some release. And I did see an Associated Press story that said currently uh, they're now looking at a proposal for $45 billion to go to transit. And the transit sector wanted $32 billion. If $45 billion holds, it's more than they were asking for, which, which will be great. How can they fill these holes once the vaccine is delivered to massive numbers of people? And how fast will these people come back to transit? That's the great unknown at this point. Right. I'm familiar with the MTA in New York to a degree, their debt problem as being one of these things that is almost like a vice, you have to make your debt payment. And so when your fair collection is down and that's 50% of your budget, it might actually magnify and be 70% of your operating revenue because so much of that money has to go to debt. How problematic is it? both long-term and I think in the immediate, that we fund so much of our transit improvements by debt, you know, with the plan to repay that through the fare box. This seems like a very distorted way that we don't apply to other forms of transportation. It's a societal, you know, what do we value? I would say the larger communities value transit, but they have to look for, for sourcing. I mean, the federal government has made it clear that they're only going to provide a certain amount of money. So the question becomes, you turn to your communities, and then it becomes a a community value judgment. Are you willing to pay more? Are you willing to to tax yourself? Part of the problem in the the U.S. is that, particularly in places where transit is robust, people want more of it. They don't want less. They want more. And if the federal government is not going to step up, if the state government is not going to step up, then communities have to look to themselves. And that is money that sadly has to turn around to fund debt. But if that is, if we have made the calculation as as a country that we do not want to provide more to public transportation to rural areas, to Amtrak, then this is this is what we have decided to do as a society. And there's really no way around that, even if the communities decide, okay, we're going to do a 1% sales tax. That's great if it's indexed to inflation <laughs> and it keeps going up every year. It, it's a judgment call. And I, w- I would say overall, as a society, we have decided that at that public transportation is not something that we value to the degree that we want to pump more money 
into it, um, at least from the federal level, at least from the federal level. I know in your, your article, you talk a lot about the politics of this. Well, how would you explain that, the unwillingness to fund transit? Because I, I have some notions. Why don't you get your, your take on that? And then I'll give you a couple of things and let you react to them. It's interesting on the federal level in that we live it as we both know in a very polarized country. Ironically, one of the things that rural lawmakers and urban lawmakers and everybody in between can agree on is that we need public transportation. For example, Amtrak is effectively public transportation in certain areas of the country. There are certain lines where, you know, systems like uh, Prairie Hills Transit tries to help connect people to the nearest Amtrak stop. There is an agreement that this is important. The problem comes is, well, there's disagreement about how to pay for it. And that's where you get into people knocking heads. It's not cheap to fund subways and heavy rail. So it has become, unfortunately, it has become an urban, rural point of contention. And we've always had that in American society. I mean, if you go back to the founding, there was tension uh, between urban and rural areas, the agrarian South based on slavery and the industrial North that was having a, you know, a more, you know, immigrant population that, that worked in, in, in factories. I mean, this goes, this goes way, way back. So the modern, the modern iteration of this is, you know, okay, you people who live in cities, you want transit and, you know, people who live out in in rural areas want to drive, et cetera, et cetera. But, The tension comes when you have, for example, low income populations in both in rural and urban areas that this is their lifeline. This is the way they get around. People in in, in urban areas are, are deeply reliant on buses and people in rural areas who don't have cars are deeply reliant on, you know, ride services or van services to get to doctor's appointments, to get to grocery stores. To the degree that these lawmakers can make common cause on this, which I think is what we're seeing with this uptick in uh, the billions that is going to public transit, we can see some way forward because I think both groups of lawmakers realize that their most vulnerable citizens, their seniors and their uh, you know low income adults, they need some way to get around if they don't have a car or can't maintain a car, which is an expensive proposition to maintain a car. We take it for granted how much it costs to to run your basic car. No fool's car. <laughs> it's not. It's not. Cheap. Oh no, it's not. Absolutely <laughs> right. And uh, by the time you gas it up and and you insure it, you 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 spend if you have insurance, you spend a lot of money. And so transit becomes a, a way to get some of these populations around to where they need to go. And I think that is one, when you read about lawmakers in Washington talking about this, this is where you really see some productive 
conversations going on. And I suspect that is one reason why that that figure, the, those billions have been bumped up because rural lawmakers are saying, hey, well, we need transit too. We need Amtrak. We're not going to give up our Amtrak station. We need it. And we need buses to run people to the Amtrak station. And if I live in a, a small town and I'm fortunate enough to, to get to Washington, D.C., with grandmom who's never been and has always wanted to go, well, you know, it would be fun to ride on a subway and to do, do something different. I think, I think sometimes we, as Americans, and sometimes we kind of poo poo what, what goes on in different parts of the country when we really should, should step back and accept, you know, accept the differences, but realize that we're all here in this country together and that certain things they need to be funded in rural areas. They need to be funded in suburbs, and they need it to be to be funded in cities. To the degree that we can work together, the money flows back and forth, and people are able to to live their lives in places that they choose, but be able to navigate those areas in a good and a way that works for them and what they need to do on a daily basis. You mentioned Western Europe earlier in our conversation. And I agree with you that it's, it's difficult sometimes to translate things from, from one place to another. It does seem to me though, that the times I've been in Western Europe and ridden transit, that I am riding something that clearly is not, I'm going to use this word and you can push back on this, please. It's clearly not charity. There's nothing about this that is designed to serve a poor or disadvantaged population. It's not an afterthought to their their system. It is basically everyone's way of getting around with very few exceptions. It seems to me that in this country, we come the closest to that in cities that, in a sense, mirror that type of development pattern. So New York City, parts of San Francisco. How do you take a city like New York City, which you know, from where I sit in central Minnesota, I live in a very poor town, a couple hours north of Minneapolis, St. Paul. We look at New York City as being like the richest city in the country. The people here who end up going to New York City for a job or going to New York City for opportunity are, are doing it because it is one of the you know wealthiest places, if not the wealthiest city in North America. How is it possible that a city of such wealth and a city of such uh, capacity and a city where the land use pattern really does mimic that, that you find in, in, in European cities with very successful transit systems. How is it that a city like that is unable to afford, has this catastrophe now where, you know, they're looking to make these huge cuts and can't afford to keep a quality transit system running. What, what am I missing about what is happening where I'm, I'm astounded by this and, and don't understand why this doesn't work well. I always hesitate to bring Western Europe into a discussion of American transportation um, because usually when I'm talking to, to certain types of policymakers who are not transit people, it really doesn't go over well because Europeans are taxed differently. They're taxed on a more progressive model. They have decided to tax themselves to have this kind of, of transportation network. They see higher taxation as a means to an end. That's why they have beautiful systems. 
they've decided, sure, take money out of my paycheck. And it goes into all of these other buckets, which does not happen in this country. And one of those buckets is, is public transportation. Now, getting to the New York example, New York is not an independent country. I think if, it all, if all of a sudden New York became an independent city, a city state, you might see some different tax patterns. For example, they have recently implemented a congestion tax. That's the closest New York City has gotten to raising money to devote to transit through a congestion tax to make the wealthier people from the suburbs to contribute to transit. New York has a, a lot of needs and it could conceivably tax itself. I'm not recalling off the top of my head, and I apologize if New York, I believe there are any taxes that are levied in the city. And again, I'd have to double check this, but any taxes levied in the city have to go through the Albany. Let's say the mayor of, of New York wanted, you know, hypothetical mayor of New York wanted to do that. They, they've tried millionaires taxes, and it hasn't really gotten widespread agreement on a way to go. There's resistance from that cohort of people. There's political resistance. So it's it's hard to agree on what mechanism do we use to get the tax dollars that we need to help fund New York transit. We can't, they, there's no agreement. I mean, uh, uh, Bill de Blasio, the current mayor of New York, and Governor Andrew Cuomo have been at almost literally at each other's throats over this question about what to do for paying for New York Transit. Cuomo doesn't want to send any more state money. Uh, de Blasio wants more money from the state. It it's, it becomes a political question of who pays. And New York has not been able to convince Albany that it either deserves more funds or, again, to the degree that they can get Albany to agree that they can tax people differently. It's not going to happen. Similarly, in, in, in Boston, for example, it's the same question. Same exact question for the public transportation system there, the MBTA. There has always been a desire to tax people more statewide to help fund the MBTA. If you live in Western Massachusetts, two hours, two and a half hours from Boston, you're not particularly invested in seeing your tax dollars go to Boston, even though, as in New York City, it's the economic engine of the state. You want Bostonians to pay for themselves. But in Boston, Boston does not have the authority to tax itself. It must go through the state legislature, which apparently that conversation is moving forward on regional tax frameworks because of this very issue, but it becomes a statewide political problem. Do you give the large cities authority to levy taxes on their residents? It remains a fraught political question. It's interesting because as someone from outside those systems, it is strange that 
you know, and, and you even said, you know, Europeans tax themselves more. They, they, they tax themselves differently. They have, a, a, in a sense, a different set of values about these things. But I would say the values that most closely align with those are the values of the large progressive cities in this country. You know, cities like San Francisco, cities like New York, cities like Boston and, and Philadelphia and Washington, D.C. It's difficult to understand why, uh, you know, these very progressive cities that are, are, are seemingly willing to spend the money on this have struggled to raise the revenue, particularly when th their land values are, are so high. It seems like there is a way here to maybe have this conversation with people who, you know, whether they're Republicans in Congress, which I don't quite grasp and understand either, you know, so that, so like th their approach to this doesn't make any sense to me. But it seems to me like if New York is saying we need a billions of dollars in order to keep this system running and it's an emergency, that maybe that is a mechanism to turn to them and say, hey, you also need to reform this system because we can't have you needing a bailout frequently. We can't have you running a substandard transit system in the richest city in the country. If we could use this moment to fix this, how would we do that? Like, what would that look like? It, it's a conversation. It's a political conversation that has to happen in each of these community. The problem frequently is there is a lot of political tension between the large cities in any state. I mean, you live in a big state, you know, Minneapolis, St. Paul is probably not the most popular place if you go to northern Minnesota, right. for example. Right, no, totally. There's yeah. always tension between the, the big city, whatever it is, and the rest of the state. Let me go back to the Boston example. Bostonians have said, there are polls on this, that they there's been lots of pressure to get regional taxation authority. But the state government the state lawmakers don't want to do it. So there has to be some sort of re resolution at the state political level that if the state capital holds the purse strings or holds the lawmaking strings, if you will, to give thumbs up or thumbs down on regional taxation authority, there has to be a conversation about giving that up. The parameters of that will differ from state to state. In Massachusetts, for example, it's been going on for a very long time, giving uh, a lot of that is, is New England government. New England government has always been very centralized, or, excuse me, not, very localized with the exception of, of this kind of taxation authority. Similarly, in New York, I think in New York, what we're seeing is a clash of egos right now. Um, I think maybe if you had two different people in those jobs, uh, the mayor of New York and, and the governor of New York, you might have a different conversation. But those two positions have always been at each other. There's always been tension there. And um, same thing in this in this region in the with the District of Columbia, Maryland, Virginia. There's always the sense that you know here's D.C. They want more money um, without having the conversation that people in the suburbs of, of Washington D.C., which means Maryland, Virginia, benefit from having this system and that they should contribute to it. There's only recently that, that Maryland and Virginia has stepped up to contribute more to the system. It's a political question that needs to be 
pushed. And I think also the other thing is that you only have small groups of transit advocates pushing this issue. Um, and it's not, it's not really coming from riders per se. Transit riders as a group are, you know, they're just trying to get back and forth and, and home and, you know, out for the evening or something of that sort. It, there really has to be more pressure from transit advocacy groups um, in conjunction with politicians to make these things happen. And given the problems that we're facing in this country, particularly with the pandemic, the problems in cities with transit will rise to the top. But, but in a lot of places, transit is one problem among many. It's education, it's healthcare. And when you start looking at, at big ticket items like those, it's money to our less fortunate systems, transit kind of gets pushed, pushed down when you start talking hierarchy. Well, it also seems too, and I'll speak as a Minnesotan in this state, a lot of our large transit investments have not been uh, designed to serve the poor. They've been light rail projects that are commuter rail that is designed, you know, in theory to take traffic off of suburban commuters. They sometimes wrap it in rhetoric of, of this will help poor people, but you know, they're right now the, the transit project we're putting in currently is a line out to our most wealthy suburb. It's interesting because there is this dependent rider problem where I feel like transit operators and transit systems kind of just take them for granted. Yeah. You hit the nail on the head. I mean, our, our transportation systems are, have been focused on getting wealthier people from the suburbs into their jobs and, and back out again. And to the degree that you have essential workers, for example, those folks, you know, it's kind of let them ride the bus. Our priorities are skewed. Um, and this also has a racial component. The poorer people who are in, in large Eastern cities are often Black and Latino. If, you know, they have substandard uh, connections to the downtown frequently, and it's the wealthier white suburbanites who have these really nice systems, as you point out, um, in, in Minnesota, the red line, which is one of our color-coded lines here in the district, runs from a very wealthy white area through some other not so wealthy areas, but the extension was the first, it was the first extension on in Washington when it was built in, in, in the 70s. So we have prioritized getting um, increasingly wealthy upper income people, not even middle-class people, wealthy upper income people from their homes to the, to the central core. When the mass of people, low income and increasingly middle class people, because the line between the middle class and the and lower income is narrowing every single day of the week, they have been shunted aside. And again, that is one of the, you know, one of the profound defects of how we think, you know, how our society is structured, uh, particularly when you think about problems like gentrification. Let me throw an insight at you and have you react to this. If I could just be made in charge, I would obviously give local transit systems a lot of money and, and get us through this crisis and try to fix this problem. But I also struggle with the idea that funding from Washington, D.C., federal funding, 
of transit is a positive force. And I say that because it does seem like a lot of times our transit advocates, our state departments of transportation, our local transit agencies tend to fixate on that big project, that big flashy capital project that doesn't really serve the, and and I'm not saying transit should be charity because I actually think that's part of the problem. But instead of actually serving people where they are, providing really good frequency, really high quality service, reliable bus service, reliable rail service, we tend to have the air sucked out of the room chasing after the next large expansion we can do. Do you agree with that? Or is that a, is yeah, that a I do. I do agree with that. I think um, that's one thing that I think the pandemic will change. How do we fix that then? How does the pandemic change that? I think the pandemic changes that because the money's gone. As Americans, we're going to have to fund the basics. There's a tension in, in, in transit policy between expansion and fix it first. Um, fix it first is a, uh, a philosophy that basically says, make sure that your trains and buses are operating in peak condition and providing those necessary services before you think about the next bright, shiny object that you would like to have. Bright and shiny objects are, are, are good. It's, it's, it's nice to be able to expand, for example, in Washington out to, the, to Dulles Airport, which is the international airport here in, in, the, in this region. If your buses and trains are not running at in prime condition, I mean, just think about how some deteriorated some systems are in, in, in larger communities or in mid-sized cities where they're not really able to, to upgrade. That's a problem. I think because the money has fallen out of the system with a pandemic, transit agency is going to have to think about what can we reliably run at uh, decent frequency and forget about, you know, the bright and shiny object unless we're willing to tax ourselves. We have to keep the core of the system healthy. And sometimes the core of the system has deteriorated in, in quest of the, the bright, shiny object to X suburb. And I think that philosophy is going to have to change with the pandemic because everything, all of our systems, be they transit or, or healthcare, are going to have to get back on their feet. And the only way to do that is to reassess once we're in a new normal reassess where we are and try and keep what we have running and maybe scale back on some of these expansion products. I mean, look, in, in the New York, New Jersey metro area, there's a deteriorating tunnel, Amtrak tunnel. It's falling apart. It's leaking from Hurricane Sandy, you know, years ago. We can't even get that repaired. As nice as it would be to have a, a spiffy high-speed train going from D.C. to New York in two hours, for example, uh, maybe we fix the tunnel first. You'll find a lot of uh, dissension in, among transit advocates and policymakers about expansion versus fixing things. And as someone, I don't have a car, so I ride a lot of transit. I would rather have a system that's up and running and comfortable and clean and works. If you want to get me to someplace new, great. 
but let's have the system that people ride daily in, in some serviceable, frequent service. It, it does feel like less money might be more in the sense that it will change our priorities. Yet I'm also kind of aware of the fact that in good times, if we can't take care of people, are we really going to shift during bad times and do it? I don't know. Are you optimistic that we'll make that change? I think you put your finger on something in bad times, we'll be able to do it. I think we've been in a really fraught, the past year has been fraught <laughs> on a number of different levels. And I don't know that we've weathered this bad time well as a society, which is a bigger conversation. But I think once people can see over the mountain to the other side, I am relatively optimistic about individual cities and communities coming together and saying, okay, those of us who survived to get to the other side need to start doing things differently. And people keep talking about going back to normal. We never get back to the normal we had in the before times as they're now being called. We have to go to a new normal and we have to, as a society, figure out how we survive this, how do we want things to work differently and to improve? And on the transit front, that's going to be, we need more robust service to certain communities where we saw crowds. The crowds were there in the pre-pandemic days, but they remain during uh, the bleakest periods. And we're still in a pretty bleak period of the pandemic. So we need to make sure those people are taken care of. And there's got to be, you know, pressure from the news media, from transit advocates, and from the savvy policymakers saying, look, we cannot go back to business as usual. We have a new normal. We learned some lessons. And can we implement what we've learned and have this transportation system, this public transportation system, work better for the people who depend on it the most. The wealthy commuters who uh, can work from home, they may not come back, but and they may continue to work from home, but some of them will. Um, it's something I put in my article that there's this uh, talk about how cities are dead and that public transportation is also dead. Cities may be dead to people who are wealthy enough to go out to a second home in some really nice countryside or beachside community. It may be dead to them, but for the millions of people who live in cities, you know, those people never left. They had to work with the city that they had. Similarly, in, in rural areas, you may have wealthy people who now have shown up <laughs> in, in these communities. And they're going to have to work with the people who've always lived there. So cities will continue to thrive once we can all, you know, come out of our, our houses and get back to entertainment, get back to the things that we as human beings like to do that we've all been, you know, separated from sports and concerts and all of that um, recreation. 
And I think there has to be a willingness to figure out how to make that work best. I think the mass of people, the average person wants that to happen. Uh, I think what may hold us back, I'm optimistic that in cities, this can be made to happen. In small towns, it can be made to happen. The problem we're facing as a society is the, is the polarization. And, and, and that is, is a bigger issue that affects not just transit, but kind of every sector of our society. But I think if Americans can kind of find that stick to that we do have and that's gotten us through the pandemic, we can make this great project move forward. It's, it's just a question of, is, is there a will to do it? Gabrielle, it's been really delightful to speak with you. If, if people want to follow your work at the American Prospect, how would they best do that? You can follow me on, if you are on Twitter, at, at GurleyGG on Twitter. You can go to prospect.org. And you can search my name and all of my work is, is there. So those are probably the two best ways uh, to find me. The American Prospect is the magazine I work for. And uh, I am a pretty uh, furious tweeter. And I'm happy to engage on, on the topic of transit. Love talking transit. Um, it's something, I, as I mentioned earlier, I grew up with it. Love taking buses and trains. And I'm happy to connect with people on all sorts of ideas involving public transit in America today. Well, the article that we've been discussing is Public Transportation in Crisis. Gabriella Gurley, I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. And let's keep in touch. I'm going to be interested to see how things unfold in the new year. And maybe we'll revisit this topic in the future. Happy to do so. Thanks for inviting me, Chuck. It's been a great conversation. Thank you. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made this city? The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.